You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Live edition of my favourite podcast and uh, radio show. So we're going to have Stephen Novella, Bob Novella, Jay Novella, Evan Bernstein and and a woman uh, join us. (laughs) It's The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe! Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, October 25th, 2012, and we are live from SciCon 2012. Joining me as always are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Jay I love Novella. you too. <laughs> Jay Novella. Woo! Rebecca, yeah! <laughs> I love you, Jay! <laughs> and Evan Bernstein. Hello, Nashville. <laughs> so how are you guys doing? How do you like Nashville? It's awesome. I didn't. I thought people were going to literally be playing guitar when I got off the, oh, the on, airplane. Jay. Yeah, in the airport. You know, yeah. So, Rebecca, you always start us off with a This Day in Science and Skepticism. This show will be going up on November 3rd. So, uh, did anything happen that day? Nope. <laughs> Ever? Oh, all right. One thing happened. One thing happened. Sputnik 2 happened. Sputnik 2, the revenge. <laughs> Son of Sputnik. Son of Sputnik. <laughs> That's right. Sputnik 2, you might know as the one that killed the puppy. No? Oh, that's weird, because I really thought that this would go over well at a live event. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Sputnik 2 is the craft that took Laika into orbit. Uh, Laika being the Soviet space dog who became the first animal in orbit for about like 10 minutes before he she died. A couple of hours. It was a couple of hours. They thought he was going to survive for about... Ten I days. Think she's a she. she was going to survive. Yeah. Get it right, that, Steve. Those you know, asexual Russian yeah. names. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> they, they thought that Laika was going to survive for about ten days, but then they had a little mishap with the cooling system. Oops. And yeah, got a little hot in the capsule. 104 degrees. They said. I'd be a hot dog. Yep. Oh, oh come on. Thank oh you. God, I'll be here yeah, all the weekend. How? Can we just take a moment just to take a poll of the audience? How are our dead dog jokes doing? Good? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. You know what? I didn't know until we researched this item that it was a one-way mission. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. really nasty. Well, they the, actually the, ca- the capsule returned. About 162 days later, it burned up in the atmosphere. But yeah, but they never intended to bring Laika back. No, No. they actually were going to euthanize her with poison food after the 10th day, I think, right? This is seriously the worst (laughs) item ever. (laughs) What was I thinking when I picked it? Oh, yeah, I didn't pick it. (laughs) Steve forced me to. But we'd she, never know who this dog was if it didn't go on Sputnik 2, right? I mean, this would be an otherwise oh, yeah, another and I'm animal. Sure, I'm sure Laika appreciates the fame she gets from beyond the grave. <laughs> she got her 15 minutes. Well, we, we are going to to start the, uh, the new segment of a show with an in-memoriam. We do like to, uh, on the Skeptic's Guide, pause to remember those members of the skeptical community who have passed 
And uh, Paul Kurtz died several days ago, just the day before the organizers were coming down to the conference. He died on Sunday. Uh, He was 85 years old. It was 1925 to 2012. So that is 86. Yes, I can do math. Um, You'll know why I was confused in a moment. Um, Because you're terrible at math? (laughs) Yes. So before... Um, before, the, before we get the show started, the, uh, Ron Lindsay and Ken Fraser talked about uh, Paul Kurtz. And he, you know, he was one of the giants of the skeptical, commun- of the skeptical movement, the skeptical community. You know, he was largely responsible for organizing you know, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, founding Prometheus Books, CFI, uh, the secular humanism. He was an academic, a philosopher. He really gave a lot of weight to the movement early on. He made it to that, he broke it to that next level that it wasn't that, you know, be, before he came on board. So he has to be remembered for that. We did have some interactions with Paul along the years. The, the, the first year that... We started, you know, Baby Steve. Aww. I was a little younger back then. He's three years old there. I'm only a little less gray, yeah. You, you, could, you can mark my age by my grayness up until about 10 years ago when I went totally gray. Right when we got started in 1996, you know, PSYCOP, now CSI, um, they, you know, they were the big national skeptical organization. They, you know, definitely t- took us under, our, under their wing, you know, gave us a, uh, their support, their, their local membership list or that, so that we can get our, our movement going. And I remember meeting Paul at the first World Skeptics Conference, and he was immediately like you know, your grandfather, like, you know, very, very comfortably took on that air of being a mentor. It's like, yeah, you know, this is great. You're welcome to the, to the skeptical movement. Um, so I d- definitely remember him fondly in that way. A few years later, Paul organized a meeting of the local skeptical groups. In the picture here, you can see uh, me again with Bob Perry and Evan, the four of us came up together. Now, if I remember correctly, Rebecca, you and I were off being badass somewhere else, right? I think that's what was happening, yeah. And I think in the foreground, that's, that's Colonel Joe Nickel, isn't it? Colonel. He had, to, he had broke his leg in Spain or something? Round of applause yeah, for that. Colonel Joe Nickel. <laughs> Joe, Joe actually is going to come up and he's going to read a poem that he wrote, I believe, about, about Paul. Paul was a great supporter of the arts, and I I hope he would have liked this poem. It's called Book of Seasons, an elegy. It's as though these yellowed trees are newly gilded by the sun, their fallen leaves old, hammered gold. So you are gone with the season, before snow's white pages are scribbled again with passages you'd find decipherable that would flow like a spring thaw. We'll see you often wherever reason grows, flowers anew. Thank you, Joe. Uh, this same weekend, Saturday before the, the show, Leon Jaroff also died. 
He was 85, hence my confusion. So Leon Jareff, not a big name in the skeptical community recently, and if you ask you know, people at conventions like this if they knew who he was, I mean, in fact, right before the show, Rebecca said to me, who's Leon Jarrow? Um, sorry, Rebecca. But he, 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 was, he, he uh, was perhaps one of the most skeptical journalists that we have had. Uh, he was the science columnist for Time magazine, he, it was he who said, you know, popularizing science is important. You know, we should start a science-dedicated magazine, and that was Discover Magazine. That was him. Um, he was not afraid to be a hard-nosed skeptic when writing about scientific issues. So, for example, when writing about chiropractors, he wrote, chiropractors also employ a bewildering variety of weird practices to diagnose their patients. Some use applied kinesiology, a muscle test that supposedly can diagnose allergies and diseased organs. Hair analysis and iris reading are commonplace in the profession. Even sillier and many of, are many of the treatments that chiropractors use and recommend. Homeopathic potions, colon irrigation, magnetic therapy, enzyme pills, colored light therapy, and something called balancing body energy among other mystical procedures with undocumented effects. That's from a mainstream journalist writing in Time magazine. Do we see this kind of thing today? No. I don't think so. Nope. So you know, we do have to, I think, also note the, uh, the uh, support that Jarov gave to, to good science journalism, and that, that kind of hard-nosed skeptical science journalism definitely something we miss. That's a void that I think that we in the skeptical, skeptical community have to fill, but unfortunately it is a void. Rebecca, yes. this is a different quote. This is not, not as good a quote. Um, science in isolation is great for producing stuff, but not so good for producing ideas. Mm-hmm. Who said that? Uh, that was said by Andrew Pinsent at the Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. What I particularly like about this quote is that it is completely reversed. Um, it is the exact opposite of what I would have suggested. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the science is actually really good at ideas, but in order pr- to produce stuff, you have to add something else. Uh, you know, like they might be able to figure out uh, lasers, but to make a CD player... You need a marketing executive. Or a death ray. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, of course. Why didn't I go there first? Uh, (laughs) Yes. So uh, this uh, this quote comes from a recent article that the BBC uh, produced. Big Bang and Religion Mixed in CERN Debates. Apparently, there was a conference recently that CERN held. You remember CERN? They're the guys who apparently may have found uh, the Higgs boson. A boson with Higgs-like properties. A a Higgs-like thing. A Higgish. I like Higgish. Higgish. A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. Uh, Higgy. So yes, uh, apparently I don't know. I don't know the purpose. I don't know what, uh, who dreamt this up. But what I'm thinking is that someone was concerned that they may have found a particle that many people know as the God particle, and so they're concerned that they're going to be excommunicated, or you know, that people will rebel. Religious people will rebel against science. Basically, we'll have some sort of dark ages esque thing happening and so maybe somebody at CERN thought well we should have this conference where we talk about how religious people should be okay with 
the Higgs boson. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the good intentions that I'm assuming are behind this conference that had speakers such as this. The the quotes in here are are pretty fun, um, and none of them have any amount of intelligence to them. Steve, you're the one who brought this one to my attention yes. here. I'm, I'm interested in what you... We've talked a little bit before about things like the Templeton Foundation, mm-hmm. which is uh, an organization that gives out a prize, uh, gives out prizes to people who can explore science in a religious context, basically. And I'm, I'm a bit opposed to it. I feel like it's muddying the waters. I think we don't need to bring religion into what people are doing at CERN. I think mm-hmm. those two things are happily separated, but I'm interested in knowing your feelings on this. No, absolutely. I mean, I think trying to uh, introduce theology into science is, is uh, misguided. Now, this conference was specifically about the origin of the universe, so it's not just about scientific issues in particular. And I think the, 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 the thinking, at least on the part of the theologians who were quoted about this conference, is that, well, if you're talking about the origin of the universe, that's a really big question. And religion is about answering the really big questions, not science. Science is narrow and reductionist and makes stuff but can't really grapple with the big questions of our origins. And that's exactly incorrect, as you were saying. That's, that's a complete knock to science. I mean, science is, in fact, the only human intellectual endeavor that can answer any empirical question about the origin of the universe. So yeah. was the conference, though, the scientists trying to appease well, religious people? The you know, saying apparently that this was, the, the conference was on, done on the part of CERN, according to BBC. Um, and, and that's what I find troubling. I, I'm totally okay with a conference that religious people host, you know, uh, and the topic might be, how do we, you know, how do we consider our theology now that we know X, Y, and Z? Now that science has discovered this, what does that mean to our belief system? And I think that's fine, but, you know, a Apparently, the, the, the theologians who were there seemed to think that this was a chance to debate the scientists. Yeah. yeah. And no, why would you do that? Debate is completely, it's the opposite direction of well, where you want to go. It also, I mean, the quotes seem to me like a desperate grasp at relevance, trying to make it seem like they're, you know, that theology was still relevant to questions about origins of the universe, when in fact science has completely displaced it from that endeavor. So did it end up with like a fist fight? Like what happened? <laughs> Science won. I, 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 I haven't found any evidence of any arrests. So it, apparently... There were no not. fisticuffs? That, that really must have been awkward as hell though, right? Like they're like what? sitting there like after a whole day and they're like, uh, okay, it's over now. Like, what, what Some, they, something tells me they're not going to be doing this again. Well, kind of I mean, it's, just, it, I it's actually, it's not even, like, I wish it had been that exciting, but instead it just seems like it was really boring and nobody came yeah. to any conclusions because you can't, you know, yeah. you're just having a, a discussion of like, well, you know, but what don't we know? I, I know we're trying to keep, we like to keep our live shows really light. Um, so far, so good. So we thought we'd talk about a, a horrible earthquake that killed over 300 people. Yeah, let's go there. Um, Good intro. Good intro. But there's actually a better story embedded in that. Um, There were six Italian scientists who were recently convicted for manslaughter for failure to properly communicate the warnings about the uh, upcoming L'Aquila earthquake in 2009. We've been following this this story since it happened. 
the, the quick version is that there were a number of, of small tremors in this very earthquake-prone you know, part of Italy, and uh, the, the geologists, the local geologists, you know, were following it. And their, their opinion was that, while these tremors are very common, most such tremors are not followed by major quakes. Most major quakes are not preceded by these kinds of tremors. So uh, the, the probability of a major quake occurring is not particularly higher you know, now just because of these, these tremors than at any time, and therefore there's no cause for alarm. Now, they were specifically asked during a press conference, should we panic, you know, should we evacuate? And they said, no, there's no reason to evacuate. Stay at home and drink a glass of wine. Steve, so, was this about a year ago? We, we in 2009. 2009. Oh, wow. So it was the quake, right. and then the court trial started about a year ago, and now the decision came down that the six scientists were convicted to six years, I think six years in prison and something like you know, millions of dollars in damages uh, for manslaughter, for the deaths of the people who didn't evacuate because they, of their reassurances that there was nothing to be, to be worried about. That's horrific. Well, I, you know, to, to play devil's, devil's advocate real quick, if there was true negligence, like if they didn't follow through with things that they needed to do, if they did a terrible job at analyzing the data in a, in a fashion that where the data could have been analyzed better or they actually weren't asking their peers for the information, I can understand if there was extreme negligence. But even still, like that, right. that's very hard to prove. And I, I just don't well, understand. Well, not really. I mean, so the question is, was their opinion within the standard for their profession? That's, that's in, my, in my opinion, that's the only real question here. They, you can't be blamed for being wrong, right? You can't be blamed for a bad outcome if you were following the standard. Now, of course, scientists can't predict earthquakes. You can't predict when an earthquake is going to occur. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, what the, every statement they said was truthful, you know, every factual straight, statement, these tremors do not necessarily mean that there's an earthquake coming, um, and they are not a reason to, eva- to evacuate. We, we don't evacuate every city whenever there's tremors because there might be a major quake because it's not that predictive. So that was not negligence. No, and they weren't really being accused of negligence. They were basically being accused of poorly communicating to the public. It seems to be based on a lot of false premises about what scientists can know, what an expert about, you know, an earthquake, a geologist expert can know. Yeah, they've been convicted for not using a magical power they don't have. Yeah. They might as well have convicted all the psychics in Italy for not accurately predicting this earthquake. But I think we need to be careful. Like, I don't disagree, of course. I don't think the, the, these men should be going to jail for this at all. But it is an important thing to state that I think people should go to prison or get in trouble legally if they are misrepresenting science or, or right? So you see where I'm going with this. Like well, yeah, if you're, if gonna, you are, if you're yeah. setting that premise, if you're saying, hey, these guys screwed up, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, they didn't communicate to us the real possible outcomes here, whatever, and I, and I, you know, like I, yeah. I will reiterate, I don't think that they should be going to jail. But well, I, I do think, though, that that standard that that court set needs to be applied all the way down the ladder. Yeah, so Jay, like someone saying that I have a cure for cancer. and Exactly, it's right. So if they're going to actually take those scientists out and say, you're done, you're not performing science anymore, and you're going to jail for that bad decision or information you gave, well, hello, then you know, all of a sudden a million lawsuits need to be filed. But it wasn't, it was just to, to clarify, though, it wasn't bad, it was just unlucky. I mean, I, doctors encounter this all the time. You know, the, um, 
you are asked to decide, you know, what, what tests to order, what diagnoses a patient might have. There's a whole, there's a lot of liability involved with that. You can't be convicted of malpractice just because the, the, of a bad outcome mm-hmm. if what you did was within the standard of care. So it was the information they were given to the public within the standard for the profession. If the answer is yes, the fact that there was a low probability earthquake the next week is not their fault. It doesn't right. change the fact that, you know, if they're saying there's a 99% chance that there's not going to be an earthquake and then the 1% thing happens, they were still right, right. Yeah. In, in saying that it was unlikely. Yeah. And didn't the evidence show, basically, that they performed correctly, essentially? That's the consensus. I mean, so there's worldwide outrage, especially among the scientific community. This has got to be shot down in, in a higher court. Yeah. This can't st- I hope so. possibly Well, stand. there's two appeals left. There's two appeals, and they, will, they can't stay out of prison before those appeals. So the, the United States National Academy of Science, or the Royal Academy of Science, um, the Royal, Royal Society, rather, issued a joint statement saying that that is why we must protest the verdict in Italy. If it becomes a precedent in law, it could lead to a situation in which scientists will be afraid to give expert opinion. Yeah, that's so it has a chilling effect. What you know? What geologist is going to you know talk to the public in Italy now? If you could wind up in jail and you know financially you know devastated and your career devastated because you can't predict the future, you know, because you don't have a crystal ball. Uh, it, it's insane. Yeah, to it's think insane. that they're going after these these scientists. And they're not going after the rampant quackery throughout. Well, there's you know, that too. Yeah. I wonder how much pressure they came under from like the families, the survivors of this terrible, oh, yeah. terrible devastation. And I imagine they put a lot of pressure on politicians and other people in order to hold somebody accountable. They have to. They had it. They had to send someone down the river for that. Did they have a trial? Did they have yeah. witnesses and experts yeah. coming in? Yep. I'd love to know the details of what exactly happened because how could. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll yeah we'll see if the worldwide backlash has an effect. I mean, again, they do have two appeals left, so we'll definitely follow it. All right, Rebecca. So we have a cute animal. We're going to talk you. about now. Tell, yeah, there we go. This just, is a happy one. Just <laughs> just tell me this narwhal or whatever is alive. It's, it's a alive whale. and well. It's a whale. It is. Tell me this beluga is alive. <laughs> That's knock the beluga. They're very much alive. It's not a beluga. Knock. N O C. Knock. Knock. It's knock, knock the beluga. The beluga. <laughs> I was about to say no. I, that is a beluga. Sounds, sounds like, like a, a children's song. <laughs> it does sound. I haven't like seen children. it. Uh, no. Okay. I don't change it. <laughs> <laughs> if my daughter was here, maybe, but no. <laughs> um, so what's important about knock the beluga? Well, okay. So picture this: you are part of the National Marine Mammal Foundation, okay, and you're in the tank swimming around with the whales and stuff, and all of a sudden you hear somebody, you hear a, a, a voice call your name, something to the effect that, uh, get out of the water, get out of the water. So you're in the tank, and you come up, and you say, okay, who told me to get out of the water? Who told me to get out of the water? And the other scientists and people are looking around at you like, uh, nobody? What yeah. the heck are you talking about? And uh, <laughs> he's like, well, I definitely heard that. Uh, well, what, what did he actually hear? Well, apparently, knock the beluga made some noises very reminiscent of human noises. Um, beluga whales are, you know, incredible creatures. Um, their calls, they're known as the uh, canaries of the sea. They have a very high frequency, high-pitched tone to their uh, noises that they, that they make. But they make lots of different kinds of noises. They can emit up to 11 different kinds of sounds, crackles, whistles, trills, squawks, all sorts of things. But it's been rumored that these whales can emit noises that sound like humans talking. And for the first time, they've actually recorded Knock, the whale, uh, making these noises, and they, they, have it on, uh, they have it on tape. And we have it on tape. Nah. 
Did he maybe just swallow a kazoo? <laughs> uh, Everybody has a drunk neighbor that makes those noises. <laughs> oh, gosh, who knows what the heck he was saying. Uh, you know, dolphins have been taught to mimic noises that kind of sound like human voices. But uh, before this, there's been no record of an animal spontaneously coming up and making these kinds of noises. This is the first evidence, Here's, the first hard evidence theory. we have of it. I have a theory. Mm-hmm. I have a theory that... So uh, whales in general are incredibly intelligent, oh, yeah. uh, possibly as smart as us, but they don't have thumbs or any way to talk to us. Or fire. And I feel like they basically... That's true. No, I saw SpongeBob once. There was fire <laughs> under the sea. I think it can be done. Yeah, they don't have nanotechnology. Uh, they don't. <laughs> And so my theory is that whales are basically like they have, it's like they have locked-in syndrome, you know, where they are super intelligent, Mm. and there's all these people around them, they're just messing with them. So he was screaming, actually. Yeah, and so he's been, like, his whole life, he's been in this stupid little, like, he's in captivity, right? So he's been in this stupid little aquarium, and he's just like, I hate all of you, (laughs) and I'm going to will myself to tell you because you're too stupid <laughs> to understand. So basically what's going on here is um, the whale has learned to change, uh, rapidly change pressure within its navel cavity in order to create these uh, create these sounds. And uh, it has an, he, the whale is able to overinflate what's known as its vestibular sac and its blowhole, which is normally acts to stop water basically from coming in. So the whale is going through a lot of, you know, effort essentially to try to make these noises. And I'm sure they're going to be trying to figure out exactly, you know, basically why is the whale but he, this, doing this? This whale was, did spend his life in captivity. Yeah. So he did hear human speech a lot. And mm-hmm. maybe he's just to some extent mimicking the sounds that he grew up hearing. His whole it's life. Definitely, it definitely has a human sound to it and the cadence and everything. Yeah. I mean, he's, and he's intelligent enough to mimic a human, which is really cool. Yeah. And then you always think, you know, if he can mimic a human, if his brain is advanced that much... Mm-hmm. But yeah, is, maybe, he, is he mimicking humans or making fun of humans? <laughs> you know, like people yeah. make fun of other like, languages. Wait, wait, wait. This make is what you sound yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> you stupid bald monkey Sounds in like a false dichotomy. Get out of here. So we're going to talk about going from talking about uh, beluga whales to talking about pandas. Uh, except we're not talking about pandas because we're talking about. Stop toying with wait. my emotions. <laughs> I had to put a cute picture of a panda up there for you, Rebecca. We are talking about pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcal I didn't infection. Know panda was an acronym. Cool. Panda. Or pandas. See, there's a panda. Aww. Yay. But Aww. we're talking about pandas. Oh. Which worse. is a, a legitimately controversial medical diagnosis. Um, so the, essentially what happens is children suddenly develop tics like Tourette's syndrome uh, and psychiatric disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, and it is thought that in some cases that it is actually uh, the inciting event is an infection, bacteria, streptococcal infection. Um, now, of course, it's always difficult to establish the reality of a new disease unless you get all your ducks in a row and all the you know, pathology all adds up. Um, it, it's sometimes difficult to, to identify a legitimate new syndrome and to prove that, that cause and effect. So 
correlation is one thing. As we know, correlation is not necessarily causation. And so uh, the syndrome exists. Uh, there are a number of physicians who have identified this sudden onset psychiatric, neuropsychiatric disorder, and it, in some cases it is temporarily associated with a streptococcal infection. But that's not the same thing as saying that the strep infection caused the neuropsychiatric syndrome. So that's, and there's the controversy. Now, of course, we live in the modern Internet age. So as soon as a scientist says, I think that there's this syndrome, I want to call it PANDAS, and this is, you know, uh, a psychiatric syndrome provoked by a bacterial infection, of course, there are now support groups, and there's groups on the Internet, and there's patient groups supporting this diagnosis uh, before the science is even settled. And then, of course, once that happens, when you try to do more science or have any kind of discussion about whether or not this is a real syndrome, you have parents and patient groups and advocacy groups you know, calling you all kinds of nasty names and saying there's a conspiracy against people with pandas. It's all the insurance companies and big pharma and evil doctors or whatever. So that's the situation that we're in the middle of right now, unfortunately, uh, is that, that before the science is settled, you know, there's, there's the scientific controversy, then there's the, the public controversy. Uh, this came to uh, um, the media attention recently because of a 16-year-old girl called Elizabeth Ray. She developed you know, a syndrome like pandas with tics and, and psychological disorders, was diagnosed by a physician with pandas, and then was transferred to Boston's Children's Hospital for presumably for further treatment of pandas. Now, the story that is going around the pandas community is that once she got to Boston University or Boston Children's Hospital, she was told, the parents were told, we don't believe that pandas is real, that it exists. And, and then they um, essentially admitted their daughter to the psychiatric unit and started treating her with psychiatric medications. Now, I don't know if that's true because the doctors and the hospital are not telling their side of the story because of patient confidentiality. So we don't know what their side of the story is. We only know the parents' side of the story filtered through the pandas' community. Um, unfortunately, now there's, you know, this story has taken on a life of its own. There's a free Elizabeth Ray movement going on within the pandas' community. They're telling all kinds of horror stories about Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and, you know, we, we can't verify any of it. I, what's interesting in reading about it is that each side has their narrative. And I wrote about this on science-based medicine because, you know, one of the things that w the ideas that we're wrestling with in the skeptical community is, well, all right, we have... I think a good approach to critical thinking, we understand a lot about self-deception, about the nature of science and pseudoscience, but we don't always have a good story to tell the public, or we have a hard time convincing mainstream outlets that we have, that our story is an interesting and good one. We don't, you know, we have to really market our narrative, the skeptical narrative. Uh, when you read about um, stories like this, the, the pandas proponents have a really compelling emotional narrative. It may be total BS, I don't know, but it, it's very compelling. They have a story of a child suffering from an unusual disease, parents who just want to do what's right for her. I believe all those things are correct. Um, and then they are essentially being abused by a dismissive and skeptical medical establishment who doesn't believe in this disease and then is treating their child with um, perhaps harmful you know, uh, psych psychiatric medications. 
Um, they even this went this went to court. The, the apparently the hospital thought that that the parents were being negligent in not allowing them to give proper standard of care psychiatric treatment to her child, and they wanted to have custody taken away from the parents, and they wanted to admit uh, Elizabeth to a locked psychiatric ward. Again, not sh I can't verify those from the hospital side of things. Uh, a, a judge, a Massachusetts judge, essentially made her a ward of the state while they sorted out what was going on, but they did not grant the hospital um, their request to, to treat her in the way that they wanted to. So they essentially just, the state took her out of everybody's hands for a moment. For the moment, it's interesting. So, of course, you know the the the, the pandas community again is is up in arms. You know, the court essentially took custody away from these parents that are only trying to do what's right for their daughter. But of course, you could see the other narrative. The the you know, let's assume that the physicians think that even if you think whether or not you think pandas really exists, they think that she has a psychiatric illness. The parents are in denial. They're pursuing this false diagnosis, and they're you know, refusing standard medical care. That's a, that's a story too. What if you just pulled out the whole strep association and just treat it like a pan disorder? Why, is, there, is there beef that it's associated with strep and they don't think there's any association? Why don't they just treat it like a neuropsychiatric disorder yeah. and forget about the whole strep association? Well, because the, the strep association would lead you to treat with things like antibiotics. So that's the question. Should you treat it with antibiotics or should you treat her like a psychiatric Why not both? I mean, why wouldn't you? Well, she has had at least one round of antibiotics. Um, you can also treat it like an autoimmune disease with, like, intravenous immune globulin, for example. So I mean, these, are, these are real medical questions. Do we treat it like an infection? Do we treat it like a post-infectious autoimmune disease? Or do we treat it like a psychiatric disorder? Steve, are you saying pandas questions. don't exist? Let me just get this straight. So, well, I, I did, to answer, give a serious answer to your, to your sarcastic question, I did um, <laughs> My favorite take time. the opportunity. I'm good that way, as I said. I'm good that way. I did take the opportunity just to familiarize myself with the, the pandas literature. Again, I, I always emphasize I'm not an expert in this, but I can read the literature and give my, my opinion like a science journalist. I think it's genuinely controversial. When I read the, the, the research, it, there, there's lots of, the ducks are not in a row. So when you do things like treat kids who apparently have pandas with antibiotics in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, they don't necessarily improve. And if you look for the antibodies that are supposed to be there, they don't necessarily correlate with, with the disease onset or with the uh, existence of strep. So, so this is clearly not like autism and vaccines. It's just it's so, no, so, more complicated. Right, so that. autism and vaccines, I would say that's been studied enough to say that, autism's, that autism is not caused by vaccines. We can say that. We can make the negative statement. I, I cannot make the negative statement that pandas does not exist, um, only that the research so far has not reached the threshold where we can agree that it does exist and that there is some actual negative data there's some positive data, too, so it's, it's legitimately controversial. Uh, it did remind me, though, of the, uh, the chronic Lyme disease controversy, which is very yeah. common in New England, uh, again, where they think that a, a number of symptoms, sometimes including neurological symptoms, can be caused by an, a bacterial infection and treated with antibiotics. And the same, there's a lot of overlap in those two communities. You know, Steve, the, yeah. are you saying the public has unreal, unrealistic expectations? Well, I think it's partly that. I mean, it, the, I think the public is uncomfortable with the uncertainty, and they like this sort of hero-villain narrative. So they, 
they paint the medical community as the villains, and except for those maverick physicians who understand, they're Lyme literate, or they're, they understand pandas. So they're they're the heroes. And then the insurance companies don't want to pay for you know over and over recurrent courses of IV antibiotics. So they're the villains. You know, they're not. I mean, I'm not defending insurance companies, but sometimes they actually, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they don't want to pay for things that are not science-based or evidence-based. So it's complicated. And, in, in, you know, how do we, so how do we deal with a child with this disorder when we don't know what the best scientific answer is? We don't know if it's autoimmune, infectious, or psychiatric. Uh, we just have to, you know, do the best we can. And there may be different physicians who would take different approaches. But to portray it as pandas definitely exist, if you don't believe in it, you're dismissive and you're, you're mean and evil, uh, or you're protecting some kind of big pharma grant that you're getting. They always bring that up. Rather than saying, you know, that we really want to know the right answer, but we just haven't found it yet. It's, yeah, I it's think legitimately it, controversial. I think what, what you're saying does confirm what I was thinking, is that the, the public wants an answer. Science is not yet done figuring this one out. Yeah. And like the earthquake one, right? So yeah. sometimes the answer is we don't know yet. You know, we need more, need to do more research. And in medicine, we have to make decisions in with imperfect, you know, information. So I mean, it, wouldn't you know, it be typical too? Like, let's say that this is happening over and over again. Yeah. Like at some point, some doctors are going to come up with different ideas. They're going to try it out. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the trial and error process happens. I, and I hate to say it, but this girl is probably going to be one of the people that gets tested on with with new ideas. Well, I mean. Uh, well, if you're really testing, then you should be doing a research protocol. Uh, if you're just applying the best knowledge that we have to an individual patient, that's you know, a certain amount of trial and error with that. That's not really experimentation. So there is a difference there. So um, well, I, you know, the other interesting question that I'm kind of alluding to is what role do the, the patient or the advocacy groups play? I think a lot of times that they are, they are helpful in raising awareness for a disease or a disorder and raising funding. Um, in advocating for patients, you know, obviously I think there's a lot of very effective, very good patient advocacy groups out there, but sometimes they put their nickel down on a specific scientific answer, and that's not their job. Yeah. It's not their job to predict or demand that science give them the answer they want. And, you know, unfortunately, pe some people want the answer to be an infection, not genes, not, yeah. well, they, yeah, no, we don't curable. know. That's the one yeah. that seems... They want the, right, of course, who, who, that's what the answer I would want to have. It's something outside that is, you know, foreign, that can be cured, and that could re reverse my child to the way that they were. Who, every parent wants that to be the answer. But sometimes, you, ha you know, you have to step back from what you want and, and listen to the evidence. That's the, that's the scientist, that's the physician's job. You, know, you should just let them do their job. All right, know? so I want to bring up a, a quick side point on yeah. this. So as an example, let's say 50 years ago, let's say this was happening. What, what stance do you think the public would have differently than what, what we're seeing today? It's, it's, it's the same, and this did happen 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you know, she would be diagnosed with neurosyphilis. Uh, maybe not somebody who was 16, but that was the that was the the stand-in for what we now would you know the the same subculture would diagnose with chronic Lyme. There were believers in that. There were physicians who believed in treatments like the chelation therapy, you know, and the science proved it wrong, and they said, well, we don't care, we're going to still do it. We're going to come up, we're just going to keep coming up with special pleading and alternate theories and form our own societies and our own, and just keep doing it and say that it's all a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's just the turnaround time is so much faster because of the internet. Like another example, CCSVI, right? The um, alleged blockage in the veins that drain blood from the, from the brain causing multiple sclerosis. It's that, that whole process of, 
Dr. Zamboni proposing this entity and a treatment, to it being researched, to it being refuted, to you know, in, uh, patient advocacy groups springing up and calling for conspiracies and calling for research and demanding that science give them the answer that they want, all has taken place within a few years. We've seen that cycle happen right before our eyes. So the, the Internet is just making it happen a lot quicker and a lot bigger, I think. But it's always, always been this way. So do you have any ideas on what we could do? Can the skeptical community do anything to help this? Well, I mean, situation? I think what we do is we discuss the issue from a science, logical, critical thinking point of view. We, you know, we point out the role of science in this, and we, we, I think we try to bring the public discourse to a, a level that, that can deal with it in a more productive way rather than the conspiracy mongering sort of lowest common denominator that it would otherwise sink to. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Um, Jay, we're talking about how the media presents stories about paranormal activity. Yeah, this is interesting. So um, a professor um, decided to, Professor Brewer decided that um, because that we're, what we're seeing over the years is a very obvious interest in the general public to to news articles and to TV shows that that talk about ghosts and you know we've all seen we've all seen the Ghost Hunter TV show and to people like us at best we watch it and it's fun right because it's ridiculous and entertaining and we like to see people from our perspective a skeptical perspective they're acting foolishly but there are a lot of people that are watching this and they're riveted like they they really love it and they think a lot of it's real and I'm sure to a certain degree I can't say everyone that watches it and thinks everything about it is real, but in the end, there's a huge entertainment factor there, and unfortunately, to to us skeptics, we feel like there's a lot of people that simply believe it, and that's their favorite entertainment, and I know a lot of people, I'm friends with a lot of people that literally have active discussions on Facebook all the time that I dip into that are talking about the latest TAPS show, with the, oh, so can you believe it, and I knew that place was haunted, and they're like just you know, getting whooped up. I don't get it. I just don't get nothing happens. Yeah, There's, that's not true. That's, that's I mean, not true. I never yeah. find Steve, a ghost. Steve, did you feel that? Yeah. What that happens. That happens all what the time. <laughs> I mean, they're just—they feel so much. <laughs> the thing is, you know, I, I want to see a full floating torso <laughs> drift across the camera lens. Then I'll be impressed. I, I still won't believe it. There, no, yeah, but at right. least it'll and be entertaining. A lot of the shows, though, they're all right on the cusp, you know, the noise, right? They're always right on that cusp. They're always just seeing something or something falls over. Or, you know, there's a noise from upstairs or whatever, and it's never, they never give you that. You this know, actually, you that. this came up um, t- tomorrow. Uh, I'll be talking about the paranormal road trip that I just went on with John Ronson and Richard Wiseman um, that got us here and uh, at one of the stops we were at a we did talk to someone uh, in a haunted museum and uh, she was telling us that the ghost hunters were there and it was very exciting because there was a noise in the attic and there were steps even though nobody was up there and so the ghost hunter uh, ran over and climbed up the ladder and, and looked into the attic and just then a lady dressed all in white came flying at him and he shrieked in horror and fell down the ladder and it was all really dramatic and we were just completely blown away obviously we were oh, riveted yeah, well. and we said we cannot wait to see that footage uh, and she said actually uh, I mean it was just it was 
it was so good they didn't actually get that on camera. <laughs> no, all the cameras were down uh, in another room well, somewhere. So that there's was like there's literally no evidence of Ed it. Ed Warren, but, we were investigating yeah. Ed Warren. He told us a story of being in a haunted house and they had a local news crew over there and like for two hours they videotaped things flying around the room. You know, like you say, really impressive, you know, smoking gun evidence of paranormal activity. We're like, great, can we see that footage? It's like, you know what? They taped over it for the news segment (laughs) later that night. Uh, Go, go, go figure, the stupid dude. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions that I want you guys to not answer right now, but just think about it, because these are pretty obvious questions, but I, I think they're interesting. Why do people believe or like to believe in the paranormal? What, what's the attraction? It's an interesting question if you think about it. There are people that really seek it out and love it, and they, there's something exciting about it. There's something kind of visceral about it. To my mind, to a skeptical mind, I, I don't have a connection to it. I just don't see what that allure is, other than maybe because I do like horror movies and I do like to get scared. I love being actually scared sitting in a movie theater. It doesn't happen that often, but when it does happen, it's very thrilling. And maybe they're just having a lot of those thrilling moments. It's easier for them to get but scared. But also, I mean, don't you think maybe it's got something to do with the fact that maybe we're not going to rot in the ground and die and never see our loved ones again? Yeah, maybe. maybe. It's, you know, I, I'm not going to say no, but I, when I think about it, the, there's something thrilling about it. I'm not thinking as I'm being thrilled in a horror movie, oh, I'm defying death by being thrilled right now. It's not happening. I'm just, I, there, there is something, it's like, you know, eating something yeah, really too, spicy that hurts. Too, it hurts, but it's good at the same time, right? Uh, to, to a lot of people, definitely, you know, evidence of ghosts is evidence of the afterlife. Yeah, and yeah, when we talk to people who describe their own experiences, often they're talking about grandma, grandpa, and whatnot, coming back to them and telling them that it's all okay. You know, and they're very comforting messages. Yeah, which is why they, narrative. And which is why they watch these shows. It reinforces these positions that these people have. You know, well, and they, they derive they, they derive a certain, you know, need. I wonder uh, though, because those shows are so bad. I mean, there's a lot of... Personally, I would derive a lot of happiness from knowing that my dearly beloved grandmother, who I adored when I was young, she died when I was young, I would get so much happiness knowing that she was just screwing around with asshole ghost hunters on TV. (laughs) Just like brushing past them and then disappearing whenever the cameras come out. You know, that would give me a lot of satisfaction knowing that. Maybe the skeptical version of it is watching a YouTube video Video of Hitchens just tearing some moron apart, right? That's our version of that. <laughs> that releases because that makes me yeah. believe in something, yeah. right? It makes gives me a thrill. But okay, anyway, so there is an article we're talking about here. So Dr. Paul Brewer, who is uh, teaches at the University of Delaware, developed a study that was recently published in the journal Science of Communication that examines the influence of the media on the public's perception of the paranormal. So here here is his test. He took four news articles that were similar to each other, but they had significant differences in, in some of the details. The, the essence of it was we had, had an article on one end of the spectrum that described a paranormal effect with a, with a paranormal investigator, and they were using instruments to measure things or whatever. And then as you go down to the fourth article, the fourth article gets very descriptive about using, using you know, faux scientific language to make the paranormal investigators sound scientifically minded and, and using scientific tools. And what he found was the more of the faux science that was in the article, 
the more that the people believed that the paranormal accounts were true. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's kind of a kick in the gut for, for us skeptics because, and for us scientists because they're using our lingo and our, and our vernacular and the way that we go about presenting data and they're fooling people yeah. with it because I think the general public is, is trained to a certain degree to recognize scientific language and recognize the formality of science. And they're using that, and I don't know how deliberate it is. Maybe they figured it, they figured it out for the TV shows that, you know, hey, you know, the more we BS this, the more we make this meter look cool and we throw in you know, technical mm-hmm. jargon, the more people are going to be interested in our TV show. I, I think they also believe it themselves, Jay. They think they're being scientific. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a that's a big part of it as well. You bet they do. So Brewer said it wasn't just any story about paranormal investigators that made people believe in ghosts and haunted houses. It was a story about how they were scientific. So he puts a big emphasis on the science there. And the good news was that he said they might look at this and say, well, all it takes is this sprinkle of some acronyms in there and wave around a cool-looking thing that beeps and suddenly people believe in ghosts and haunted houses. Now, the, the one cool thing about his research was he also found that if at the end of the article there was a skeptical disclaimer that said, this is the skeptical perspective, this is why that investigation was wrong, this is the mistakes that they made, and these are why these instruments are bogus, if they threw that in there, it actually made the people believe in the claims a lot less. What? Yeah, it actually worked. The, so the sk- thing that we're always complaining about, that like one sentence that the presents the entirety skeptic, yeah. of the skeptical yeah. opinion, that actually does make a difference? Well, I, I don't want to I don't want to say that the token skeptic 30-second BS blurb that they cut on most of the TV shows that we see works. Uh, the way that he presented it, it seemed a little bit like it had more teeth. It, was, it wasn't a quick thing. I think it was a little bit more of a, a takedown. So there, there was a series of studies about 10 years ago where they looked at the same thing, at the presentation of pseudoscience in a documentary and its effect on people's belief in the subject matter, like belief in UFOs or alien visitation. They found some similar things in that when it was presented scientifically, that absolutely imp- increased belief. Uh, they, they also found that if at any point in time it, it was said, uh, there was any kind of disclaimer saying the following claims are true or that the following claims may or may not be true or whatever. Anything positive or negative reduced belief in the, or reduced the increase in belief following the segment. So anything that, that triggered people's questioning about is it true or is it not true was actually a good thing. But they, but they found the opposite in that the token skepticism at the end, a scientist coming in at the end and saying, you know, we've evaluated this and it's not true, increased belief in the thing because it, it lent legitimacy to the whole enterprise, the very fact that a scientist was spending their time and giving their oh, attention yeah. to it. So, is that a cultural change well, maybe, or is it a, the study? Well, all right. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, but one possible interpretation may be that the token ineffective skepticism actually has a negative effect in raising belief in the paranormal because it's lending false legitimacy. But if you give effective you know, analysis, yeah. effective skeptical analysis. Maybe you could reverse that and bring it back. Yeah, down. from from what the article said, it was yeah. a it was I think an equal paragraph on the skeptical perspective. And, yes. it, and, and specifically, so we really do have to argue for equal time and for getting the skeptical. Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah. Not Steve. the the, the that, talking head blurb. Talk, token skepticism may not. Yeah. May still be counterproductive. And the yeah. the uh, the thing that he said was that there was the article, the paragraph did a takedown of the people that were claiming to be scientists. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it stripped their expertise away, from yeah. them, in yeah. essence. So, you know, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think that we're hardwired for these things. I, I, I find, unfortunately, more and more TV programs. Hey, you guys, noticing like what's with the reality TV? Like, why is reality TV taking over television? Have you asked yourself that question? Because it's cheap. It's cheap. Cheap. Yeah. Okay, we do have a few minutes for some Q&A. If you want to ask us a question, you can ask us anything. We won't necessarily answer, but you can ask. Rebecca, I hate to break this to you, but Knock the Beluga died five years ago. God damn it. (laughs) God damn it, Tim Farley. Tim Tim Farley. (laughs) On a more serious note, Jay, apropos of what you said, I'm waiting for the skeptics community to uh, have some reaction to the television show, The Long Island Medium, especially when she has kids on the program and she's telling them that, you know, she's talking to their dead parent. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's pathetic. I'm going to sit I haven't well, brought I, myself to watch it yet. I mean, I, just, you know, I, I know it's out there. At some point, I think we should probably should bite the bullet and then do an actual review. But I, the, the reports that I heard are, as you say, really abusive, very exploitative, yeah. not just that it's totally gullible nonsense. It's really exploitative. Yeah. Love your podcast. Listen a lot. Always wondered whose voice says, and now it's time for science or fiction. That's changed over the years. Um, the, the current voice is it's Izzy. Izzy. Izzy, Izzy Lawrence. Lawrence yeah. uh, she has a podcast called Sunday's Supplement. She's a skeptic and a stand-up comedian in England. So that's, an act, that's a genuine British accent, unlike some of the previous people who have said that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah, with this, um, the Italian decision, but the geologists and the uh, not predicting the volcano or the earthquakes. Um, there could, there's like a, there's a silver lining here. It's, there's a, this could be a boon to the insurance industry because maybe geologists and seismologists need to take out malpractice insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, <laughs> that's your silver lining? <laughs> the insurance companies? <laughs> Well, like, well, in all of this, I was really worried about the HMOs, but it'll <laughs> be all right. All right. Hi, guys. Love the podcast, and I love everything you guys do. Um, I'm really, a- everything we do? You don't know half the stuff that we do. Yeah. You don't want to know. Certainly everything I'm aware that you oh, okay. guys do and good, can good. assume you do, which good is really He hasn't seen Ock the Skeptical Caveman yet, so... Oh, I certainly have. Uh, and you like it? Oh, yeah, really good stuff. <laughs> I'm so surprised, Jay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, anyway... Uh, I'm a teaching assistant, and I help teach a lot of science courses, a lot of basic science courses, and we teach the scientific method, and most people understand the scientific method, but there's this other part that never gets explicitly put in there, like this honesty and integrity built into it, like you need to make sure that the effect you're trying to explain is really there, and that kind of stuff. Have you guys come up with a really good way to explain that part of science to people? You mean just that you have to be ethical? Or you have to really care about the truth, I guess, is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. That is sort of implicit in the scientific process, that you're trying to find the actual answer, not just work backwards to the answer that you want to have. Um, So I think that's also implicit in scientific skepticism. I mean, that's part of one of our core values is we want to know what's really, really true, not just what seems to be true. And sometimes you have to dig really, really hard and you have to be skeptical of your own conclusions. I mean, that is skepticism, I think, what you're saying. So I think that combine that with the scientific method and you have scientific skepticism. Yeah, I think he was asking more about 
teaching the idea that you we want to know the truth and be passionate yeah. about the truth and i it's a hard i don't it's a hard thing to teach i think i think that you know we're all kind of freakish in the idea that we were into skepticism it's it is something that you can teach your kids absolutely but yet, you know how do you teach a, an adult to get into the truth and and get rid of all the garbage that's in their head it's hard as you know as people get older it's hard for them to to learn that i think but I do agree with you. I think we need to inspire kids to, first off, teach them skepticism. Let's just start with that. I think that the caring will come with that. It's time for Science or Fiction. Science or Fiction, I'm going to read you three items. Two are real. One is fiction. And then we'll pull the audience. We'll see which one you think is the fiction. So, here we go. Item number one. A new study finds that astronauts who have spent more than one month in microgravity have a 35% increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. Number two. Scientists have discovered the first feathered dinosaur in the Western Hemisphere and also adds another dinosaur group known to have feathers. Item number three. Researchers find that at the molecular level, evolutionary changes can be highly predictable. All right, so let's uh, start by polling the audience. Uh, applaud for the one that you think is the fiction. How many people here think that the one about astronauts and heart attacks is the fiction? Okay, how many think the feathered dinosaur is the fiction? Okay. And how many think that the evolution is predictable is the fiction? Okay, I think that was three, one, two. Mm. Let's start at this end, Evan. Why don't you tell us what you think? And I'd okay. like to remind my co-host, this is a live show. Keep it quick. New study finds that astronauts who have spent more than one month in microgravity have a 35% chance of uh, increased risk of heart attack and strokes. Um, okay, so hmm, what would be the trick here? More than one month in microgravity. That is a long time, essentially, but 35%, I don't know, that seems like kind of a high number. Uh, A lot of things do happen to people in uh, space, microgravity and so forth, uh, and they uh, do carefully uh, study that and the effects on astronauts and so forth, so perhaps that one is true. Second one, first feathered dinosaurs, the Western Hemisphere, and also as another dinosaur group. Um, Known to have feathers. I have no idea about that one. Not a clue. Not a clue. I'll jump to the third one. Researchers find that that at the molecular level, evolutionary changes can be highly predictable at the molecular level. That's fascinating. Now, the audience said that that one was going to be most likely the fiction. You're you're trying to convince them. Yeah. Well, you know, I think they convinced me more than I'm going to convince them of that one. I, I, I think... The molecular level. I don't see it. I just, I just can't see it happening at that level. Evolutionary change is highly predictable. Uh, there's a bit of a vagary there in regards to highly predictable at the at that level. I'll say that that one is fiction. I agree with the audience. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah, I found the audience's argument very convincing as well. <laughs> I I have heard about health problems associated with low gravity, zero gravity, 35% increased. It's the specifics that I'm not sure about. That doesn't seem ridiculous to me, that 35% increase, relatively speaking, I... You know, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound uh, too crazy to me. I, I feel like that could be easily be science. 
uh, knowing what I know about other health risks in zero gravity. I, I do think that there was recently a, fe- a feathered dinosaur discovered. My problem here is that I believe that I could be completely wrong about this, but I believe it was discovered in North America, and I do believe it was the first one in North America. Those are my thoughts. But is that the first one in the Western Hemisphere? I don't know. So now I'm trying to think if there had been one discovered in South America before, because that's still the Western Hemisphere. So, but I, I but checked, yeah. would you be that that niggling? I'm not sure. And so that leaves us with the idea that evolutionary changes are highly predictable. Predictable. Thank you. Uh, on the molecular level, yeah, that does seem way out there to me because uh, that it's written in a, such a way that makes me think that you have reversed that. But maybe that's what you're trying to make me think. So for me, it's between the first and the third one. Because, uh, because, and I should say that I'm, I'm questioning the first one simply because it doesn't seem out of the ordinary to me. And so you might be trying to, uh, to switch it up. So I'm staring deep into your eyes because I don't normally get this chance. It's like a poker. This is like, uh, yeah, yeah, this is like a poker. game of poker. You just look bored. <laughs> That's what I'm getting from you right now is an intense feeling of Are you trying to cold read me now? Boredom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. seeing I'm seeing an, an M. M. Yeah. Like, um, I see the number three. Murder you if you don't give me the answer. That's what I'm getting from you. Murder. So I'm going to go with the audience. I'm going to evolutionary go with the okay. evolutionary. All right. Yeah. Bob? Okay, live show. Um, <laughs> the astronaut one, number one, 35% seems high to me. I, I know there's some, some major issues for extended stays in microgravity. Um, they've got to exercise like hours a day just to, just to maintain what, what, you know, some muscle tone. Um, but a month doesn't seem long enough, and 35% seems a little bit too much. Because I, I know that when they come back, yeah, things can be tough in 1G, but they, they get it back fairly quickly. So let's see, let's look at the other ones here. The first feathered dinosaur, yeah, would it be the first? I know they, they discover so many, so many in, in China, but uh, they could be the first one in, in the Western Hemisphere. Another dinosaur group. Uh, you would think it would, be, it would be another dinosaur group if it was the first in the Western Hemisphere. The third one, at the, yeah, this one's, this one's a little sketchy. But I don't know. I don't know. There, there could be some pattern. There could be some pattern that they detected at the molecular level. The highly predictable, highly is, is bothering me. It's it's. What do you mean by highly? Um, yeah, it's between one and three. And therefore. And therefore, all right. I'll, <laughs> all right. I'm going to go with the um, but the microgravity. Thirty-five percent just seems like <laughs> okay. Much. All right, Jay. All right, hedge your bets. Well, okay. Number two, I have no reason to doubt. Uh, the one about the, the feathered dinosaurs. Uh, the one about the evolutionary changes can be highly predictable. I'm curious what you mean by evolutionary changes. I mean, the, are you saying that they can predict, and I know you're not going to answer this, but I'm questioning, uh, can they predict that a mutation is going to occur, or, or are they predicting what the evolutionary change is going to be? Am I crazy in asking that question? I, no, I'm not going to answer it, but you can... So. <laughs> Ask. I think that they can predict that there's going to be a mutation. I don't think that they can predict what that mutation is going to be. And I think that that's vague, and I'm not going to take that one. I, I'm going to go with the one about the astronauts as being the fake for a couple of reasons. One, 35% does seem like an awful lot. I think that that would mean that some, some astronauts would have had heart attacks, and I've never heard of an astronaut having a heart attack. Really? Have you? I don't really look into it that well, much. Well, there you go. That's it. I'm done. All right. All right. So very quickly, let's see if they changed your mind. Who, who in the audience? And applaud again. Who thinks the astronauts is the fiction? 
Thank you. More. Feathered dinosaurs. Thank you. And uh, evolution being predictable. Ooh. You've had a major swing, a Steve. Might be a little... He swung him to number one, but I can't yeah. convince anybody that this feathered dinosaur thing is fiction. These Scientists have discovered here. the first right feathered here. dinosaur guys. in the Western... They're nobody. The Western Hemisphere. <laughs> and also adds another dinosaur group known to have feathers, and that one is science. Oh, Sorry, okay. I do appreciate it, but that was Boring. Science. Who cares? So um, you guys do suck, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, they were brave. They were willing to go out right, there. You really even have to read this Imagine one. if they were right. Um, okay, so right. the scientist is Darla Zaletsky. Uh, they, she discovered and her team a uh, an ornithomimus uh, dinosaur, which is is, is a, in the group the ornithomimids, and that is a, a, a group of theropods, and it is the first feathered dinosaur in that group, and it was discovered in Alberta, Canada, so it's the first Western Hemisphere feathered dinosaur. Found three specimens, an adult and two juveniles. The juveniles have just downy feathers all over their body. The adult has the downy feathers, but also has you know, mature feathers and some partially developed wings. So it seems like the adults developed these, these proto-wings, probably not having anything to do with flight, probably to Ma- something or... that adults do that, that children don't do, maybe something to do with mating, for example, and remarkably well-preserved. Hmm. So it increases also the number of different kinds of sediments in which feathered dinosaurs, the, the evidence of feathers can be found. So it's the first one in the Western Hemisphere, first of this kind of fossil find, and the first ornithomimid with feathers. Very interesting finding. All right. Cool. Let's go on to... I guess we'll go to number one. A new study finds that astronauts who have spent more than one month in microgravity have a 35% increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. Bob and Jay think this is the fiction, and they've convinced a lot of the audience. And this one is the fiction. All right. Thank you. Good job. So I made that up. Um, The real news item that inspired that is only tangentially related. What the study found was uh, the explanation or an explanation for why astronauts who spend time in microgravity develop a condition known as orthostatic hypotension. What that means is that when you go from, say, lying down to sitting or to a standing position, uh, normally your blood vessels would contract, it would raise your blood pressure, maintain your blood pressure so that you don't pass out, you don't get lightheaded. But if you have orthostatic hypotension, then upon standing, your vessels don't contract to compensate, your blood pressure drops, get your lightheaded. perfusion to the brain decreases, you can get lightheaded, or even to the point of passing out. Um, astronauts develop this very commonly after a short stay in microgravity and almost always if they've been in microgravity for a long time. The explanation for this is that spending time in microgravity impairs the ability of the vessels to contract, apparently because they don't have to. So they just sort of get lazy and they, whatever feedback mechanism is there to, to, uh, to tell those blood vessels to contract you know, doesn't function for a while. Um, and then you know, almost like the, the body has to relearn that reflex when, once they're back in gravity. So didn't seem that surprising a finding, but that's, that, that's what they found. All right, number three. <laughs> Researchers find that at the molecular level, evolutionary changes can be highly predictable, and that one is science. That was definitely the ringer. Um, what the scientists show, they looked at uh, different insect species, uh, but in many different groups of insects. So insects separated by 300 million years of evolutionary history. Insects have been around for a long time. 
And what they found was that insects which eat a certain kind of plant that produces a certain kind, kind of poison all evolved one of a very few number of possible molecular solutions to eating that poison, oh, even cool. though they were completely separated along different evolutionary paths. And what they said is, essentially, if there is a limited number of solutions to a problem at the molecular level, that, it, that, the, that one of those changes will occur in an evolutionary line is actually becomes highly predictable. That you could predict that even if they're completely separated uh, evolutionarily on different branches, separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution, they're going to evolve the exact same mutation in the same protein that gives them the same uh, ability to tolerate that toxin. So the, at least to, on that level, the evolutionary changes become predictable. Um, and, they, and they said they thought that it was predictable to a surprising degree is how yeah. the, the scientists uh, characterized that. So that was interesting. But, it, you know, it, 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 uh, it does make sense if, you know, there's only so many solutions to a problem. Evolution is probably going to hit upon one of those solutions independently over and over again in multiple different lines. We do see that type of convergent evolution. They were just talking about it on the molecular level. So good work, Bob and Jay. Thank you. you. Did a good job. Well done. And well done to much of the audience. And Jay, you have a quote to close out the show for us? All right, so this is a quote sent in by a listener named Timo from Taiwan. And I think it's really cool that someone from Taiwan is into the person who, whose quote this is. And the quote is, Skepticism is essential to the quest for knowledge, for it is in the seedbed of puzzlement that genuine inquiry takes root. Without skepticism, we may remain mired in unexamined belief systems that are accepted as sacrosanct yet have no factual basis in reality. Who said that? Paul Kurtz! <laughs> A skeptic of some note. Yes. Thank you, everyone, and thanks for coming to SciCon 2012. Skeptics Guide to the Universe, let's hear it! The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>